Romans chapter 7. And tonight we move to the second part of the chapter, verses 13 through 25. This is where it gets tough. I warned you some weeks ago that uh, Romans 7 is not the easiest chapter in the Bible to understand and interpret. And this particular passage that we begin to look at tonight is, I think if you were to ask a hundred top Bible interpreters in our day to name the top five passages that they find hardest to interpret, I think the second part of Romans 7 would be on almost all of their top five lists. So it it is one of the more difficult chapters of the Bible. We need to pray for God's grace and help as we move into it. It is important. Let's read verses 13 through 25. Romans 7, beginning in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. In Greek mythology, there is a story about a king called Sisyphus. Sisyphus was believed to be the founder of the city of Corinth, and he was known as the craftiest man who had ever lived. He was world-renowned for how sly he was. He was deceitful. In fact, uh, the legend says that King Sisyphus was so deceitful that he was able to dupe the Greek gods into doing his own bidding. A classic example, when Hades, the god of the underworld, came to claim Sisyphus and to bring him to the rim of the dead when it was time for Sisyphus' life to be over and for Hades, the god of the underworld, to come and to claim Sisyphus. We're told that Sisyphus tricked Hades into placing the shackles on himself rather than on Sisyphus. Sisyphus kept Hades, death, locked up in a closet in his house for many days 
during which time no human being on earth could die. In fact, according to the myth, during this time there were great battles in which people were hacked into pieces in violence, and yet, because Hades was bound and could not take them to the underworld, they were able to make it home by supper time. These kinds of tricks eventually got King Sisyphus into trouble with the Greek gods. And so according to the myth, Zeus saw fit to punish this king for his pride and conceit. And Zeus's punishment for Sisyphus was that he must spend all eternity pushing a large boulder up a very steep hill. Sisyphus must push with all his might to get the boulder up to the top of the hill. As soon as he reaches the top of the hill, the boulder then rolls all the way back down again, and he must begin the process again for all eternity. Zeus saw fit to punish this man for his audacity with an endless task that is frustrating, burdensome, and in vain. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like you are in an endless struggle to get something accomplished, and every time you think you get to the top, you find yourself back at the bottom again, having to start all over? Do you know what it is to suffer in a struggle that seems burdensome, frustrating, and ultimately in vain? Friends, this is how it is for those people who seek to please God through law-keeping. You try and you try and you try to be good enough. You try and you try to keep God's commandments, to be as good as you can possibly be, and yet after great toil and great struggle, you still ultimately fall down. You sin. And then you have to start back at the very beginning. You've broken God's commandment. You're guilty in His sight, but you begin to hope, well, maybe I can now be extra good and make up for the sin I commanded. So you start trying to keep the law again, and you carry this weight, striving and striving, until you fall down again. This kind of life, trying to please God through law-keeping, is burdensome. It is frustrating, and ultimately it is in vain. This is not the way of salvation taught in the Bible. And this is not the abundant life that Christ came to bring. The gospel is the great news that Christ has already fulfilled the law for sinners. All that come to Him and are united to Him in faith are made right with God, not by our own works, but by what Christ has already done on our behalf. We share the great rewards of what Christ has accomplished. We share in the blessings that God pours out on Jesus because Jesus obeyed perfectly. Now, as those who trust Jesus, as those who are made right with God through Jesus, as those who are free from law-keeping as a way of salvation, are we now to avoid the law of God, to neglect the law of God? God forbid, are we to hate the law of God or treat it as a negative thing? That's the question that Paul has been dealing with throughout Romans 7, and he continues to deal with it as we come to this paragraph. Look with me again at verse 13. Verse 13 says, Did that which is good, the law, 
then bring death to me. By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now to try and help us make sense of verse 13, I want to use an illustration. I want you to imagine a kingdom. And this kingdom is ruled by a good and righteous king. And for the welfare of his people, this king has established certain laws. And these laws do have consequences, as they must, if they are to serve their good purpose. One of the laws in this kingdom is that if you intentionally murder another member of the kingdom, you yourself will receive the death penalty for that crime. That is a law that this good and wise king has established for his kingdom. Now imagine that one of the citizens in this kingdom murders another person in cold blood. And this citizen is then arrested, and he is taken before the king. His crime has been proven and exposed. There is no doubt of this man's guilt. The king now issues the judgment in accordance with the laws of the land. Because this man has committed cold-blooded murder, he is to be hanged. As the man is brought out to the square where the noose awaits him, he begins to cry out to all who will hear him. The king is a murderer. The king is a murderer. And the king, hearing this, allows the man to speak for another moment. He says to the man, Sir, why are you saying that I am a murderer? You are the one who committed the crime. You are the one who murdered another citizen and broke the law. And the man replies, Yes, but it was you who gave this law. It was you who established this law against murder. It is your law that is now bringing me to the noose. If you had not declared murder to be illegal, if you had not declared that the punishment for murder is death, I would not be going to the noose. Therefore, O king, you are a murderer. It is your law that is killing me. What do you think of that man's statement? Is it true? Is it true that the king is now a murderer because he established this law? And what about us? I mean, we live in this world under God who rules over all and He has established certain moral laws. Breaking those laws means death for us because the wages of sin is what? Death. Spiritual death. Eternal death and hell. These are penalties that God has established for our sins. Before we knew Jesus... While we were still lost, while we were still headed for hell, while we were still dead in our sins, could we have said to God, this is your fault? Had you not given us these laws and established the penalty of death, we would not be in this state. God, it is you who have killed us. You're the one that told Adam that if he ate of the tree, then death would follow. You established the curse that would come upon the human race. Now look at what's happened to us. Look at this fallen human race. Think of the hell to which human beings are headed. God, this is your fault. It is your law that has brought this about. 
Could we rightfully say something like that to God? Paul's point in verse 13 is to show that it is not God's law that has killed us. It is our sin. That murderer going to the noose has no right to say that the king's law has killed him. It was his act of murder that brought him to the noose. Had he not murdered his brother, he would still be back in his home in peace. It was his sin, not the law, that killed him. And that is how it is with us. Look again, look at verse 12, and then watch the connection to verse 13. Verse 12 into verse 13. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, Did that which is good then bring death to me? Did the law bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Dear friends, why are people by nature spiritually blind? Why are people by nature spiritually deaf? Why are our minds twisted and our hearts darkened to the things of God? Why is the human race in this condition? It is not because God gave us the law. It is because we in Adam broke the law. It is our sin that brought the curse. It was not God's law that brought the curse. Now, why does Paul want us to understand this? Why does he want us to understand that it is sin and not the law that has brought death to the human race? I mean, this seems like such a minute point of theology. Paul, why do you care so much about this small little distinction that it is sin and not the law that has killed us? Well, it's because Paul is still preaching and teaching verse 12. Yes, it is fantastic news that Jesus has saved us from the law's condemnation, but do not think of the law in negative ways. Do not think of God's law as if it was the problem. The law of God is holy, that is righteous, it is good, it is sweeter than honey, it is better than gold. God's law is a precious thing. You need it in the Christian life. Paul is saying to the church in Rome, don't misunderstand this. Hate your sin. Love the law. Now that's been our message for several sermons in Romans 7. Hate your sin. Love the law. So let me stop right here and just ask you to consider your own heart. Here is God's will for you. That you receive His law as a gracious gift. Is that you? Or could it be that there are some in here whose hearts have never been changed? Could it be that if you were honest, you would have to say that you love your sin and hate the law? You want to be able to lie and there be no consequences. You want to be able to to sleep around or hate your brother or cheat on tests and there be no repercussions for those actions. Maybe you've never said it out loud, but deep down, you hate God and His law, and you wish that you could just live how you want to live without having to worry about judgment and heaven and hell. Consequences. 
Well, dear friend, if that's you, you need to understand what's really going on in your heart. You are still a slave to sin. A willing, voluntary slave to sin. You love that which is wicked. You love that which is the opposite of God. God is your creator, your sustainer, the one in whose image you were made. And your heart is so twisted now that you love the opposite of God and wish God was out of the picture. God is the fountain of living waters, the one who can ultimately satisfy you. And sin has so messed you up that you love poison and hate living water. We ought to repent of this. We ought to plead with Jesus to give us new taste buds. We ought to plead with Jesus to work in us in such a way that we will love God and therefore love the law that reflects God, the law that describes His character. Now, I actually see six truths being taught in verses 13 and 14. We're not going to get to all of them tonight, but what we've been focusing on so far is actually the first truth of six that I see in verses 13 and 14. Truth number one was this. It is sin that kills, not the law. It is sin that kills, not the law. Now look at truth number two in these verses. God gave the law so that sin might be shown to be sin. God gave the law so that sin might be shown to be sin. Did you see that in verse 13? It's right in the middle of the verse. You have to look in the middle of verse 13 to see it. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. So how does a doctor help a patient understand that he has a cancer deep within him that is growing and needs to be dealt with immediately. How can a doctor help a patient see this and understand it? One way would be to use an x-ray machine. Using an x-ray machine, a picture is produced that reveals to the patient what is happening on the inside of his body. He can then see the tumor for himself, Well, in the same way, God's moral laws function to show us the sin that is within us. Paul told us earlier, he said, I would not have known what it was to covet if God had not said, you shall not covet. It was in the light of God's law that Paul realized that coveting was sinful and he began to realize that he had a coveting problem. The book of James speaks of the law of God as a mirror. And by looking at ourselves in this mirror, we can see all of our flaws and imperfections. We are to take our hearts, our thoughts, our words, our actions, our attitudes, and we're to place them up to the mirror of God's law, and there we will see the true desperate condition of our souls, our need for salvation. Now, I've said this several times recently. It needs to be emphasized again and again. The law is not the cure. The law is not the way you fix your morality problem. Jesus is the cure. Jesus is the medicine that our souls need. The gospel, the message of being made right with God by trusting Jesus and following him, that is the cure. The law's purpose is to reveal our need for the cure. Listen carefully because many people have messed up here. 
trying to cure your sin problem by adding more law to your life only makes the sin problem worse. You can take a thousand x-rays. Your cancer will not shrink one bit and you'll only have caused yourself more problems. Right? The x-ray is not the cure. It's simply the means of revealing your problem. In the same way, the law of God is not the cure. It is simply the means of revealing your problem. Looking in the mirror for hours and hours and hours doesn't get rid of the giant zit on your nose. At some point, you have to actually deal with the zit, right? Well, it's the same idea. The law is meant to drive us to Christ. and He is the way that we actually deal with our sin problem. So here are some questions for us. Number one, are we looking at God's law and exposing our sins? Is this something we do regularly? We talked this morning about self-examination. Is that something that you, you know about and are experiencing in your own life? If you want to be a blessing to those around you, a blessing to your Savior, if you want to be more useful for the glory of God, you ought to be doing this. We can't grow in holiness if we don't know what sins we need to repent of. You can't kill sins if you don't know they're there. And so we use the law of God to reveal our sins. And then second, are we going to the gospel every day as the cure for our sin problems? Are we embracing freshly every day the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ? Are we taking our sins to the cross, reminding ourselves that Christ has taken the punishment for us, and then, overwhelmed by His sweet forgiveness, are we looking to Jesus for help in fighting our sins? Are we taking each and every one of our struggles to Christ, looking to His Word for guidance in how to defeat certain sins? So, we've seen truth number one. It is sin that kills, not the law. We've seen truth number two, that it is through the law that sin is shown to be sin. Now here's truth number three. It's also taught in verse 13. God gave the law that sin might become sinful beyond measure. God gave the law that sin might become sinful beyond measure. Look at the second part of verse 13. Okay, moving to the, to the end of the verse. I'll begin with, it was sin. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. That was point two, now point three. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So in some way, God gave us the law of God, which is a good thing, and God gave us the law so that our sin would become sinful beyond measure. What does that mean? How does God's law call sin to become more sinful than it already is? Well, men such as Calvin and Matthew Henry take this to mean that by God's law, sin becomes sinful beyond measure in our own estimation, in our own assessment. So that in our own thinking, we always knew this was a sin. But God uses the law of God to help us sense, you know what, this is not just a sin, this is a big deal. We begin to feel the sinfulness of sin through the law of God. So for example, imagine a Christian lady 
who has become entangled in the sin of gossip. Gossiping is a, is a serious problem for her, but she hasn't recognized that yet. And so she doesn't check to see whether the information she's sharing is true. She doesn't stop and consider whether sharing this information is loving and wise. She just loves to gossip. She's spreading things about all kinds of people all the time. And every once in a while, she'll get a little twinge of guilt. A, a moment of wondering, should I really be doing this? But she's yet to really see how vile it is. And so she keeps on doing it. Well, then one morning, this lady is reading her Bible, and she happens to be reading through the book of Exodus, and she gets to the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and she reads these words. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And as she's reading the law of God, the Spirit of God begins to work in her mind and in her heart. She begins to think of everything she knows about God. That he is a God who always speaks the truth and only the truth. And she begins to think about all the people that she has wronged with her words. She begins to think of the reputations that she has helped stain. She thinks of all the other people she has pulled into her sin of gossip by spreading it on to them, to spread it on to others. In that moment, she begins to realize that she has had an utter lack of regard for truth and an utter lack of regard for the very people she was gossiping about. She begins to see how self-centered and lack, how she begins to see her own self-centeredness and the lack of love that was expressed in these acts of gossip. In a moment, through the law, by the Spirit, she sees the true sinfulness of her sin for the first time. Suddenly, the Spirit of God, using the law of God, has revealed sin in all its disgusting colors to her. What minutes before she thought of as harmless fun, she now sees, as a, she even feels it as a weight in her stomach. She, she can't believe how wicked she has been. She begins to hate this sin. She longs to be rid of it. She can't believe she ever did such things. In those moments, God uses the law to help her sin become sinful beyond measure in her own estimation. God uses the law to impress upon this woman's soul the very sinfulness of her sin. Has that ever happened to you? Has God ever used the law in that way in your life? If you were a Christian, if you are a Christian, I would guess that this has happened to you hundreds of times in your life. This, this is a part of the Christian life, having the spotlight of God's law reveal to us the heinousness of some sin in our life that we need to repent of. Through this, we begin to have the mind of Christ and the heart of God. We begin to see things from God's perspective. We begin to hate what he hates and to love what he loves. Not only do we grow to hate gossip, for example, but we grow to love wise and careful speech, the kind of speech that esteems truth and love the way God speaks. So you see, in this way, we become more like our Savior, a greater blessing in this world for God's glory. So that's the way this verse has historically and traditionally been understood. That's the way the second part of verse 13 has typically been interpreted. That God 
uses the law to help sin become sinful beyond measure in our soul, that we sense for the first time through the law the very the true weight and burden of our sin. There is another sense, however, uh, in which God's law revealed to us in the Scripture makes us sinful beyond measure. It's this. The law of God given on tablets of stone to Israel or given to you in black print in your Bibles or on your digital screen, on your Kindle, whatever you might be using, right? That's a precious gift. That is a precious gift. But it also means that we have an added culpability. Deep down, you've always known that some things are right and some things are wrong. But you've also always had a sinful nature that tries to suppress these things. But now when we sin, we're no longer just sinning against that general revelation that God has given us. We're now sinning against God's special revelation. When we sin, we are sinning against the will of God now clearly written for us in black and white. We're no longer sinning against this vague notion in my soul, well, I think this might be wrong. No, I can see in the pages of Scripture, God has said, this is wrong. And therefore, when I commit that sin, there's added culpability. It's even worse than had God never given me the Scriptures. Receiving the law of God means that when you sin, you sin beyond measure because He's given you the very light you need to not sin. He's told you the way in which to walk. You've received from His hand as a gift of love the way in which you are to walk. And yet you've chosen to do the other. Mount Hermon, the Bible you hold in your hands reveals the will of God to you. The Bible you hold is worth more than your car, worth more than your house, worth more than your very life. And friends, one day we will give an account to God for what we have done with this book called the Bible. Did you read or hear its words and then continue to act contrary to its teaching? Did you learn the will of God from this book and then choose to live in opposition to it? If so, your sin is even worse than the sins of those who have never received the Scriptures and have never had the moral will of God given to them in black and white. Others sin in darkness, but you are sinning against the light God has given you. Do you not see how our sins are all the more heinous because God has given us His law? And so let us rejoice that we have a Savior who has compassion on such people like us. Let us repent of our sins and let us embrace forgiveness in Christ. Let us pray that Jesus would make us doers and not just hearers of the word. So, so far what has Paul told us? All in verse 13. Everything we pulled out tonight has just been verse 13. We've seen that it is sin that kills, not just not the law. We've seen that God gave the law so that our sin might be seen as sin. We've seen that God gave the law so that our sin might become sinful beyond measure. We're going to look at just one more truth tonight, and we'll do that briefly. It's the truth that the law of God is spiritual. The law of God is spiritual. Look in verse 14. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, 
but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So do you see where Paul is going in all of this, right? In all of this, he's saying, don't despise the law of God. The law of God is not what kills you. The law of God fulfills a good purpose that serves your soul. The law of God is spiritual. What does that mean? What does it mean that God's law is spiritual? Well, it means that there's something of God's spirit in the law The law is a reflection of God Himself. It is sanctified by Him, set apart by Him. God's law is God's law, and therefore it is holy, and it is good, and His Spirit works through it for good and noble ends. The law of God revealed to man has the Spirit of God connected to it. There's a reason why if you had gone into the tabernacle or into the temple, and you had gone into the Holy of Holies, that, that place where, where nobody else was to enter except for the great high priest, and only on that one day a year, what was kept in the Holy of Holies? What was kept in the Most High Place? It was the law of God, right? Inside the Ark of the Covenant, inside the box, there was the law of God, the two tablets of stone, and we're told that the Spirit dwelt above what we would call the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, Right? God's presence, God's spirit, and God's law are what dwelt in a special way in the temple. There has always been, from Genesis to Revelation, a special connection between God's law and God's spirit. It is because of God's spirit that God's word, God's law, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. God's law is not a dead thing. God's law is a living and active thing because it is spiritual. The Word of God is a sword in our hands to fight spiritual battles. The law of God is a sword in the hands of the Spirit by which the Spirit pierces us and wounds us. But the Spirit uses the law to pierce us and wound us, only to make us whole, only to heal us, to cut out our cancers, so to speak. This law is given from our God, who is a Spirit to us, who ourselves have spirits. So think about this. The law of God comes from God, who is a Spirit, And it's given to us, people, who are also spirits. God never gave the law to kangaroos. God never gave the law to dogs and cats. He gave the law to other people who are spirits. All the other laws of this world have authority over only what we do outwardly. God's law has authority and seeks to regulate our very souls. God alone has jurisdiction over what's happening in your mind and heart. A local judge can put you on trial for the act of murder. A local judge cannot put you on trial because you had a murderous thought. God's law is different. God's law is deeper and spiritual. It reaches to the heart. Now, stick with me here. Do you notice the contrast in verse 14 between the spirit and the flesh? The law is spiritual, We are of the flesh. Jesus said that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The wicked, fallen nature of man is reflected in that word flesh. The pure, 
holy nature of God is reflected in that word spirit. So for the law to be spiritual means that it is an expression of the holy nature of God himself. And thus the spiritual nature of the law means that it is to describe us inside as well as out. This is why we know that thou shalt not murder does not simply mean do not commit the outward act of murder. No, it means do not harbor bitter and hateful thoughts towards your brother. It doesn't mean simply don't murder outwardly. It means don't be a murderer at all. Let there be no trace of murder anywhere within you because the law is spiritual and it is the description of God himself and God is pure in and out. There is no trace of wrongful murder in God nor should there be in us. And so the law of God, unlike every other law in the world, regulates our hearts and our attitudes and our inner thoughts as well as our outward actions. The law teaches us to be like God, pure. If we do not commit adultery with our bodies but do so with our minds, we are failing to be holy as God is holy. We are failing to meet the standard of the law, the standard of God's own perfect character. And so one great implication of this fourth truth, that the law is spiritual, is that outward external obedience is not true obedience. The goal is that God's law will be written on our hearts so that the very character of God himself will be born in us from the inside out. The law of God is not just a list of external standards. It is a guide for who you are to be from the very inside, a guide of what you are to love and a guide of what you are to hate. The law is a description of who you are to be in your inner man. Do you look at the law that way? Do you think about God's law that way? So let me remind us again in closing, law keeping is not the means to reaching this goal. You're not going to become a person who lives purely, who reflects God simply by law-keeping, because law-keeping will not cause these things to be written on your heart. You must go to Christ. What the lost sinner needs more than anything in the world is to be born again by the Spirit of God. We must have God's Spirit to change our hearts so that His law really is written on our hearts, so that the things that we find in the law of God become real in our very souls. Strangely enough, it is through the gospel that the law of God becomes real and active and alive in us. Yes, we are terrible lawbreakers deserving of hell, but God in His great love for us sent Jesus Christ to die for sinners. And at the cross, Christ bore the wrath of God that sinners deserved so that their sins could be forgiven and they could be made right with God. When we turn from our sins and trust Jesus, this salvation is ours. And if we follow Jesus, we can be sure that we have been born again and that this new heart is ours. The law of God will be sweet to us for God himself will be the greatest treasure of our lives. So Mount Hermon, I ask you, have you come to live in the love of God? You say, Justin, I want to follow the law of God. I want to be obedient to the law of God. What do I do? Do I just bury my head under these lists of rules? No. The way the law of God becomes real in your life is you live in the love of God for you as expressed in Christ. 
You embrace the gospel. You live in the gospel. Your roots go deep into grace, sweet grace, sweet forgiveness of sin, sweet I can't believe he would love a sinner like me. I can't believe heaven is coming for someone like me. And as you live in the grace of God, the law of God, the the character of God, the requirements of the law, they become real and vibrant and active in your life. Because let's face it, how can you harbor hateful and bitter thoughts towards other people when you're living in the love of God for you? Right? All right. Does that make sense to everybody? Is that clear to everyone? Okay. Believers, love God's law. Make it your daily guide. Make it a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Receive the law of God with gratitude. Love the law and love the God it describes even more. Love the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Let law and gospel not be enemies in your heart and mind. Let law and gospel be best of friends. Let's pray.